right, the 52nd Psalm to the chief musician, a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck out of your, you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for the rain today. What a, what a wonderful blessing to have rain on the day that we're preaching about Noah's flood. And uh, we know that the uh, flood subsided eventually, and uh, so the rain is starting to subside now. But we thank you for it. The grass will be greener, and uh, everything will be fresher and happier because of it. And I thank you for every person that's here. And if any person here has any trouble in their lives, whether it's a, a, an emotional distress or a financial or a physical or whatever distress they have in their life right now, looking for a job or looking for uh, a way to make ends meet, Lord, I would ask that you would favorably look upon those things and uh, just grace and adorn them and take good care of them. Lord, we love you and we praise you for all the goodness you display in our lives each and every day. And uh, we commit this service to you and to your beautiful name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we do pray. Amen. Amen. I thought we'd uh, start and sing a Blessed Be Your Name. It's a good reminder to still praise God when things are going well, when it's raining, when the sun is shining, and when it's raining, and when things are going well, when things are not. So.
exalted.
thank you for this time. Sai, we thank you that we can just draw close to you. We thank you for your word uh, from which we draw our strength, our knowledge, and our hope in you. We thank you for it, and we pray for Charlie as he uh, preaches today, that you would just speak through him as he opens up your word to us. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, I'm going to read you another psalm before we get started today. This is a real short one. This is Psalm 128. It's a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Okay, I got a few things to say before we actually get into the sermon, and the reason why is uh, I'm doing this now is because Sergio has a very good way of cutting things out of uh, the videos that we do here, and I don't want him to cut this out, and so I'm going to say it now so he has no choice. Is, um, uh, I'll still cut it out. I, <laughs> I, despite the small congregation and the uh, raining weather, which moved us off of the beach and here into the pavilion, this has been the nicest fellowship that I think I've ever experienced with Seth playing and listening to us just singing together. Uh, the only thing that comes even close to it was one time when I was in Israel up on the Sea of Galilee and there were a bunch of girls playing guitars there and, and it was just such a wonderful memory of, that I have of Israel. And other than that, it's just very nice to be here and I'm glad you all decided to stay despite the rain. And so uh, I, I had to do that now. Today we're going to speak on Genesis 8, 1 through 9. It's entitled, Then God Remembered Noah. And before I get into the sermon itself, I would like to ask you if you knew that Noah was the most successful investor in human history. And the reason why is because he floated stock while everything else went around him went into liquidation. So, Now, I remember the Twin Towers. When they were attacked on 9-11, I had a business, I was walking into the business, and the guy that had the business next to me came out and said, Charlie, you know, this plane has hit one of the Twin Towers. And so I went in, and I turned on my TV, and I remember watching that happen, and I was, they were talking about how many people were in these buildings, and at the same time, if you remember, before they cut this particular camera, you saw people jumping out of the windows and sailing down to their doom, and uh, eventually the first tower started to collapse, and it just, you know, it pancaked everybody in there. And one of the people said, these buildings are an acre in size each. And they were so massive. And I remember thinking, how is God going to sort all of this out? I mean, you've got all these human lives and they're all just kind of packed together. And I look back on that, I think that was a very stupid thought. But at the time, the immensity of what was happening in front of our eyes was simply too hard to grasp. And that's the only thing my mind could think is, how is God going to figure all this out? And then we had the Indonesian earthquake, which happened uh, several years ago, that tsunami that went in afterward, and it wiped out people all the way from Indonesia, all the way around India, and even as far as Africa. And I thought the exact same thing. I said, how is God going to figure all this out? And the immensity of that, once again, it just kind of made my mind cease, because hundreds of thousands of people simply ceased to exist like that. And then, of course, there's each one of us we live in our own anxieties, we live in our own troubles, we live in our own trials, and we think to ourselves, where is God in all of this? It's a question that I hear all the time. People are emailing me on Facebook or you know, uh, through my daily devotional on email, and they say, well, where is God in this or in this? And the question always comes down to, don't you remember me, Lord? The number eight in the Bible 
always means new beginnings. If you do a study of the number of eight, it always means new beginnings. And right now we are starting chapter eight of the book of Genesis, and we're discussing Noah, who's on an ark with eight people. There's Noah, his wife, he's got his uh, three sons and their three wives. And these eight people may have been very scared. They were certainly troubled by the events that were going on around them. But four of the most comforting words of the entire Bible start off chapter 8 of the book of Genesis. And the words are, then God remembered Noah. The words form a key to understanding many things, both in the Bible itself and in our own lives. There is a type of pattern which is found throughout the Bible, and it is hidden right in plain sight. You have your, your clear text that you read, and within that clear text, it's hidden right in plain sight. And when you see these patterns laid out on paper, they can help you understand more clearly what God is doing and why. The pattern makes a certain number of points in this direction, then it turns around and it says the exact same thing in reverse. And because of the shape of this pattern, which looks kind of like an X, they are called chiasms. The Greek letter key looks very much like our X. As a matter of fact, it does look like our X. And while we're talking, I've got one over here. I'd like it to be passed around to everybody so they can see what a chiasm looks like. And this one is particularly in the flood of Noah. Right there in clear text, it's hidden there. And if you notice when you're looking at it, that it is centered on the verse. The pivot of the chiasm is on the verse, then God remembered Noah. Be'itzkor Elohim et Noach. All right. It explains why so many things seem to be repeated for almost no apparent reason in this account. And hopefully, what I'm hoping, and I was kind of buttering Sergio up a little while ago, I'm hoping that Sergio can figure out a way of putting this onto the video so other people can see what this chiasm looks like as well. It, it's details that are like this in the Bible that don't just show us the wisdom and the intricacy of the Bible, but they also show us the mind of God as he is revealing himself to the people of the world. So I hope that you enjoy this particular chiasm. This is one of my very favorite found in the Bible. I am not the one who found this one. I want you to know that. It's from a book um, before Abraham was by a guy named Isaac Kikwada, I believe. Anyway, it may have his name down there at the bottom of it. But there are many, many more chiasms in the Bible. I found quite a few of them myself, and I can tell you that there is nothing to me that is more precious than finding one of these things in there and saying to yourself, I am the first human being since the time that Moses received this directly from God at Mount Sinai to see this pattern and then to be able to share it with the people around you. Uh, one of the Bible classes we were in Pat remembers this. She was there that Monday morning. We were having a, uh, a Bible class, and my mom was reading at the time. And she stopped, and she says, oh, I, I've already read that part. And I said, no, we haven't. But I said, that's a very good indication that there may be a chiasm hidden right in there. And so I went home that evening, and I looked for it, and we found it. It's published on the website now. But I held it all week long, and I brought it in Monday morning. And I said, I want you, because this is the class that actually led to finding this, you're the first people in human history ever to see this and it's been hidden right in clear text for all of these years. So if you want to see more of these, I've got them on my website. You can email me if you're watching on video and I will send you a link to that particular page. There are a lot of other ones that I haven't found. I'll, I'll tell you some of them because they're not on my website. Um, the book of Acts, the entire book of Acts makes a chiasm. The book of Daniel makes a chiasm. The book of Hebrews makes a chiasm. And then chapter 11 of Hebrews makes a chiasm. Uh, chapter 1 
of John, believe it or not. The Gospel of John makes a beautiful chiasm. They're all throughout the Bible. Some of them span chapters of the Bible. Some of them span books of the Bible, the entire book, as I said. Or some of them actually go over books of the Bible. And that's important. I'll explain that in just a second. And then I have seen one chiasm that actually spans the entire Bible. Now, one thing we don't want to do when we look at something like a chiasm is to come to the uh, erroneous conclusion that this proves the divine inspiration of the Bible. It doesn't, because other people have written poetry and things that have chiasms in them. What it does prove is single authorship of whatever particular passage is in the Bible or whatever particular book the whole chiasm is spanned. And how do we know that? The book of Daniel, the chiasm that spans the book of Daniel, wasn't found until just recently. That means it's been there for all these thousands of years, and then somebody finds it. And that shows us that a single author wrote this. Well, the one that I'm passing around here that covers the entire flood account is in there, and it proves that the entire flood account has a single source. And that's important if you get into critical scholarship, because critical scholars will say, well, a priest wrote this particular line, and a Jehovist wrote this particular line. And I, I know this probably doesn't mean anything to you, but people, naysayers of the Bible is what I'm trying to get at, will say that this is not a unified whole, when a chiasm proves that it is a unified whole. And then when you look at the Bible, the chiasm that goes over the entire Bible, what does that prove? It proves that there was a single mind behind the entire chiasm. And the reason why is because these books, the people that wrote them didn't know they were going to be inserted into the Bible, and they certainly didn't know what order they would be inserted into the Bible, and yet it makes this beautiful pattern. And so that proves divine authorship implicitly, not explicitly, but it proves explicitly single authorship. So keep that in mind. It's a very wonderful thing to me to study these chiasms because not only do they tell us that, but they also, as I said, they reveal the mind of God, what he is trying to tell us in a particular passage. Our text verse for today. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned away his anger and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. That's from the 78th Psalm. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, did God ever forget Verse 1, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. The beautiful words, then God remembered Noah, are set here for our benefit. They're not for God's benefits. God never forgets the work of his hands. But Noah may have thought that he did as he's floating out there on the surface of an endless ocean. But safe and secure within the ark was a man and his family, and the pairs of animals which would again cover the face of the earth. And I think about that, how amazing it is that 4,000 years ago, every single life form on planet earth today, which there are billions of them, were all contained within a single ship on the sea. I mean, we've got, my daughter takes care of elephants out in uh, Hugo, Oklahoma. Now she did big cats for a while, and now she's an elephant farmer, and uh, uh, you've got gazelles and you've got buffalo that used to span the entire United States. We've got cows, which we eat by the billions in America at steakhouses. And we've got, you know, yaks over in uh, wherever they're from, I don't know, Africa or Asia or something. And we've got all these animals, and they're everywhere, this life. And yet 4,000 years ago, they all fit on a single ship. And God remembered every single one of them. And as difficult as it may be for us to comprehend, he knows every one of them 
now. Jesus even told us this when he walked among us. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? A copper coin was just almost a worthless piece of uh, money. It's like a penny almost to us. And he said, you can buy two sparrows for that, for almost nothing. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God does know, and he does remember every single sparrow, and he knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. And in my case, that's not a big, uh, it's not a big task for God to know all the hairs on my head. But, you know, my father, he's uh, 75, 76 years old. He's got every hair he was born with. And so I was trying to do the calculation at home here. If you have, I don't know how many, 200,000 hairs on a head, and you've got 7 billion people, and God knows every single one of them. So, I, I mean, that's kind of an exercise in philosophy or, or whatever, but to me, that's an important thing that God knows every single one of those details. And he also remembers each one of you. He remembers everything that is going on in your life, all of your struggles and all of your trials and all of your, your heartaches, everything that's going on, he is aware of it. And he is right there with you. While they floated on the ocean, though, I wonder what Noah was thinking where is all of this water going to go? If there was no land left, if the water was an endless ocean and it covered up all of the land, then how could the water ever go down? And it seems like an impossible dilemma. If you think of it this way, if you have a cup and you fill it halfway up with sand and then you fill the rest of it up with water so that the water is on top, the sand is never going to come to the top of the cup. It's not going to happen. So if the water's covered the entire world, where would all of that water go? Part of the answer is given right there in the second half of verse 1. It says, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. A wind passed over the earth. Wind is an immensely effective way of licking up moisture. You've probably heard of the Chinook winds, which are out in the Pacific Northwest. The Chinook winds come down out of these mountains and they go over the flatlands and they actually just eat away the snow that's out there. And the term Chinook means eater. And what they can do is they can take the snow and eat it away at the volume of a foot in a single day. The snow partly melts and it partly evaporates in the dry wind. And at the same time, the winds have been observed to raise the temperature, the surrounding temperature, often from below zero all the way up to almost as high as 70 degrees. And then the temperatures plummet right back down to their base levels. The greatest recorded temperature change in a single day ever recorded in human history occurred on 15 January of 1972 in a place called Loma, Montana. And I was out in Montana a year ago, and I can assure you, I believe that it would do this. It went from minus 54 to 48 degrees in a single day. That is over 100 degrees in temperature change in a single day. And then the snow melts away, and then the temperatures plummet back down. And then in the same way you have, I've talked about this before, the Kamsin winds, which are out in the Middle East, and they blow so hot and they blow so dry over the desert that you can walk outside like me, completely wet right now, wet right now, and you can be completely dry within seconds because the wind is so hot and so dry. The evaporation of water from a water surface, such as during the flood, depends on several things. It depends on the temperature in the water, the temperature in the air, the actual humidity of the air, and the velocity of the air over the water. So if the winds are on a global scale, the Lord caused a wind to blow over the, the uh, waters, it says, 
if the wind is on a global scale and the Earth's poles are now able to get cold, whereas before there was a canopy over the Earth, so it was a uniform temperature, the poles are now cold, and it's picking up these, these, this moisture like it does in the, uh, the uh, Chinook winds, then all of this cold would start to settle over the poles, and it would freeze there. So you have that, and then in addition, the land, which was probably before the flood much more even than uh, after the flood. Now, after the flood, what's happened is the, uh, uh, the Great Deep, it says it broke open. The, the waters in the Great Deep broke open, and so it would have pushed up the land. So the land is higher. It's not as uniform, and you've got these high elevations in mountains, and we don't only have mountain ranges above sea level. Most of you know that we have them down below sea level, and they're even larger than the ones above sea level. So these caverns of the Great Deep, which were filled with water before the flood, they've blown open, and now they collapse. And so once they collapse, they are empty, and they're on the seafloor, and the water can drain back into there, if you see what's happening. So the 104th Psalm, after this, fills in the blanks of what happened. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, meaning the winds, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. And to this day, that boundary holds true. With the exception of tsunamis and other very rare occurrences, the water stays exactly where it's supposed to be. And even after a tsunami, like we saw in Japan just a year ago, all of the water returns back to where it belongs. Verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. The wind and the draining of the water began to stabilize and subside after five months, and the waters began to decrease. And we have a logical progression here of four different things. The wind's blowing, the fountains of the deep finishing their release of water, the end of the waters falling from the canopy, because this canopy was a crystalline, most probably a crystalline water structure up there, and then the rain stopping. Those four things occurring. So if you stand back and you look at the entire account, it is exactly as you would expect to be after a global flood or a cataclysm like this. There is no reason at all why we shouldn't take this account seriously when we see how God has given us what occurred here. After all of the rain and the 150 days that the water prevailed, you'd think that the ordeal was almost over, but then you'd be wrong. We come to verse 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. The 17th day of the seventh month is the 150th day that has already been mentioned twice in this account. Once in the last verse of chapter 7 last week, and then in verse 3 that I read just a moment ago. So it might seem strange that the 150th day is mentioned two times, and then it mentions the ark resting on the mountains of Ararat, which is exactly the same day. In other words, if you never did the calculation, you wouldn't know that this was the 150th day, and you'd assume that it's a later date. But it isn't. I sat down, did the calculation years ago, and I rechecked it again for the sermon. It is the exact same day. And so the account is not really following a chronological path. But this makes great sense for several reasons. 
First, we have the chiasm, which I've passed around here, that uh, uh, shows how this worked out, the mind of God coming into the account. And secondly, if the ark was as big as it was, think of this, it would have a pretty deep draft. In chapter 7, it said that the waters covered the earth to a depth of 15 cubits. So think about it. If the waters reached their highest point on the 150th day, and then they started to recede, as it did, according to the Bible, on the 150th day, then the ark struck ground on Ararat on the 150th day. And that means that that chiasm that is on that paper is not the only chiasm. In other words, Noah actually lived out a chiasm in his own life. This is happening, and it turns around and goes backward. It's not just on paper and ink, in other words. The exact depth of the ark, in other words, its displacement, and the exact height of the water over the mountain that God intended Noah to land on had to be calculated perfectly. Now, this doesn't dismiss the fact that other mountains could have been pushed higher during the flood because we do have mountains in the world that are higher than Ararat. But this particular mountain is the one where God wanted Noah to rest. God didn't just remember Noah. He pre-planned before the creation of the world the exact amount of water to be used in the canopy and how much water would come out of the great deep below. He had to plan the exact spot where Noah would build his ark. He had to know the exact number of waves that would lap along the side of this ark during this 150 days in order for it to arrive at a certain point. He had to know the exact amount of wind that was pushing this ark. He had to know the weight of the yak and the buffalo and the mouse and everything else that was on this ark to have it happen the way it did. Because the water's coming up for 150 days, the ark gets stuck, and on the same day, the water starts going down. He had to know everything exactly and perfectly. The execution of this plan had to be accomplished to the very, very finest detail. And there is no reason to believe that this wasn't the case. The entire account, as you see in that chiasm, as you read and as you think these things through, shows a minute perfection of detail that is absolutely beautiful to contemplate. But there is one more point about this particular day which is even more beautiful than anything you may have ever considered about the flood of Noah and how it points to Jesus Christ and to his amazing work. You see, this day, the 17th day of the seventh month, is the same day that Jesus Christ came out of the grave almost 2,400 years later. Now, this might be a little bit hard to follow, but the Bible uses two calendars. It uses a creation calendar and a redemption calendar. Until the time of the Exodus, the calendar started in the fall. But at the Exodus, I believe it's Exodus 13 offhand, I may be wrong on that, the first month was changed to the spring. The 17th day of the seventh month in the creation calendar is the 17th day of the first month in the redemption calendar. The Passover, the Bible's very clear about this, it says it many times, is on the 14th day of the first month. And the resurrection happened, according to the Bible, on the Sunday after the Passover, the 17th day of the first month. And just as astonishing is the meaning of the mountain Ararat, what it means. The Bible scholar, if you've ever heard of James Strong, most of us have heard of him, he assigns the name of Ararat being the curse is reversed. 
on the same day that the ark struck on the top of Ararat and held fast, the waters began to subside. Here comes the curse. The waters are the curse. And on the 150th day, the waters start to go down. The curse is reversed. So at the same time that Noah was brought to the safety of the land of Ararat, the curse is reversed. It's amazing. Noah and his ark then are a picture of the true reversal of the real curse, which began at the fall of man back in chapter 3 of Genesis. Only five chapters after the fall, Noah is given as a sign of what was coming in the good things found in Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that we are redeemed from the curse at the cross, and the resurrection proves to us that the curse is reversed. Verse 5 continues, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. This was the 223rd day from the beginning of the flood and almost 73 days after the ark set fast on the mountains of Ararat. It's been almost seven and a half months and the waters are slowly finding their way to their new homes around the world. They would be gathered in the polar regions, in the mountain glaciers, in the seas, in the lakes, in the ponds, in the lagoons, in the rivers, all over the earth, and also in those empty caverns of the great sea. Noah and his family have more time to sit on the ark, to play chess, maybe a game of Monopoly, before they can leave the ark. Our second thought today, patience in a world of hurry. Verse 6, so it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Every single commentary that I read said that this 40-day period was from the last comment which talked about the first day of the 10th month when the mountains were seen. But I disagree. The reason is that if the mountains were seen, and I'll give you another reason later, then Noah must have already opened the window. So this must be 40 days after getting lodged on the top of the mountain. In other words, this would be day 190, or 43 days before the previous verse. Although it may not make immediate sense to us, that particular issue is happening and the, the account is flipping back and forth, and it's not in chronological order. If you stand back and you look at this overall picture and the purpose of the chiasm in the Bible, then it becomes much, much clearer and much easier to understand. So why would Noah wait 40 days from the ark getting stuck on Ararat before opening the window? Remember, the ark draws a draft of about 15 cubits. What would be the point of opening the window when everything was 15 cubits below the water? The noise of the splashing of the waves on the side of the ark would be all that Noah needed to know. There is absolutely no reason that he would go out and open the window. We come to verse 7. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And this verse right here confirms what I said a moment ago. The 40 days was from the time that the ark got lodged on the mountaintop and not from the next comment after it where the mountaintops were visible. The raven went out and it kept flying to and fro until the waters dried up, implying that the mountaintops were still covered. So I'm sure that you would ask yourself, why would Noah send out a dove at the same time to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground? I mean, that's something that I would ask myself, and I have asked myself many times until I thought it through. 
Why wouldn't the raven, in other words, tell him this? It's because the raven is a scavenger bird, and it would have been perfectly content to land on any surface, even the dead body of some animal or person that's floating by. And plus, he would be perfectly happy to stop there and to have a snack at the same time. The dove would not do this. Instead, a dove would return to the safety of the ark and to a clean, dry source of food. The raven, then, is a symbol of the unclean world, like a person who lives apart from the grace of God, out in the world of uncleanliness. He is living only on the world of death. The dove, though, returns to Noah, just as a gentle and repentant heart is going to return to Jesus Christ and call on him as Lord and Savior. Such as a person can truly say, just as the psalmist did so long ago, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 10. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return to him anymore. Noah knew that things were finally drying out. But unlike many other plants, this is kind of interesting, the olive can actually strike leaves underwater. And God specifically chose an olive for that dove. Throughout the Bible, the olive and the oil that it produces gives us the beautiful symbolism of the work of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. What this verse is showing is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. Just as an olive can grow out from underwater, so Christ came out from the grave as the victor over death. And even to this day, we celebrate this in the rite of baptism. That's why we do full submersion full submersion baptism. Sprinkling doesn't give you that picture. And it's also not biblical, but I won't get into that too deeply today. Tied up also in the olive is the symbolism of peace with God when he granted favor upon the new world. This is seen in the fresh new leaf, the olive leaf. When we receive Jesus Christ in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are like that olive. Again, let's go to the Psalms and read it. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. And in the dove, we also have the symbol of the Holy Spirit descending upon us when we call on the name of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the messenger of God telling us that all is right with our souls. The symbolism of the dove and of the Holy Spirit descending and the olive is first truly realized in Jesus' own baptism way back in Matthew chapter 3, where all three members of the Godhead are present at the same time. It says here, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And because of Jesus Christ, we have the same hope of those beautiful words of commendation from the eternal God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that brings us to our third thought today. Oh, brave new world. They had mocked him through his misery and remorse. 
mocked him with how hideous a note of cynical derision, fiendishly laughing they had insisted on the low squalor, the nauseous ugliness of the nightmare. Now suddenly they trumpeted a call to arms. Oh, brave new world! Miranda was proclaiming the possibility of loveliness, the possibility of transforming even the nightmare into something fine and noble. Oh, brave new world! It was a challenge, a command. And that's from the book A Brave New World, and it almost mirrors what's going on with the life of Noah right now. Verse 13, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. The 601st year here means the 601st year of Noah's life. This was the first day of the first month of that year, which is the month of Tishri. And it was this exact same day, 1,657 years earlier, that Adam was created. And it was also the exact same day, almost 2,400 years later, that the Savior of the world was born in a little town called Bethlehem in Israel. Noah opened the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. Oh, brave new world, I have come forth to meet thee. Verse 14, and in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. This was 57 days after Noah opened the covering of the ark, and it was the 370th day after Noah and his family entered the ark. Now, does anybody here know how many days are in a biblical year? 360, very good. There you go. 360 days from Genesis all the way to Revelation, a biblical year is 360 days. So if you ever want to do a calculation for anything in the Bible, if you use any other year, a 364-day year or a 365-day year or a Mayan calendar year or anything else, it is not going to work. 360 days is the biblical year. Uh, a guy named Sir Robert Anderson back in the 1800s coined it the prophetic year. And that's what God uses throughout the Bible. Such as in the book of Revelation, 42 months is 1,260 days. Just do the division, 360-day year. You're going to find that again and again all the way through the Bible. So, it was 370 days, or one year and 10 days, waiting and watching as the world was destroyed by water, the waters rose, the waters receded, the waters fled to their new homes, revealing a completely different world. They had been sitting on this ark waiting for 370 days to hear the wonderful words from God. Verse 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So just imagine the excitement that this family must have felt as they got word from God that it was time to leave the ark. We don't know how God spoke, spoke to Noah. It may have been in a dream. It may have been directly. It may have been some other way. But he was given divine guidance that he and his family could now leave the ark, just as he had received the divine guidance to enter the ark. And just as they filled the ark with animals, they're now told to empty it out of the animals. And there are three categories which serve as a statement of all animal life. The same three categories that were given when they filled the ark. Birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps. 
And as we noted when the ark was filled, the term every creeping thing that creeps does not mean politicians. It means reptiles. There were no politicians on the ark. Those came from the sons of Noah's sons, which were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And as the animals departed, God gave them also a divine command that they should be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And this is what we were talking about a while ago. There are animals all over the earth. They're just abundant. And just 4,000 years ago, all of them lived on one ship on the seas. That's just amazing. And this is the exact same command that was given to the animals to uh, go forth and multiply on the earth that was given back in Genesis chapter 1. God created all of the animals at the beginning and the same spark of life that was put into them then carried through to the time of Noah and it carries through even until this day. So if you stop and think about it, what life is and where life comes from, it should amaze each and every person that listens to this sermon about how stupid, and I mean this, absolutely stupid, are the concepts of spontaneous generation and evolution. There is a spark of life in us, and that spark transmits from us to the next generation. There is no new spark that is occurring, nor is there any evidence that any new spark has ever, ever occurred since creation. But every moment is a new moment, and it has an equally possible chance of producing spontaneous generation. If this were even remotely possible, then every single moment, new life should potentially occur. In essence, every moment in time is another nail in the coffin of the concept of spontaneous generation. Were it not for the Ark of Noah, then there would be no life on Earth at all except in the oceans. And any animal which was not on the Ark is extinct because its spark of life went out of it. And finally, if the world is billions and billions of years old, as Carl Sagan and the evolutionists like to say, then the problem is only exacerbated. From the trillions and trillions of moments which have supposedly happened since the first spark of spontaneous generation occurred way back then, their only explanation for life and new development is evolution, not more generation. Both evolution and spontaneous generation are stupid and corrupt systems which have absolutely no basis in reality at all. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. He is the one that put into the spark of life all life. Verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. They were probably at this point in a state of awe and wonder. The family departs from the ark obeying the divine command, and they take off the animals with them as they went off. And the earth was certainly completely different than it was when they entered that ark. The canopy was gone, and the skies would be completely different. We have blue skies because of the way that the sun comes through the atmosphere and because of the dust particles in it. It would have been completely different because they had a canopy above it. The landscape would have been completely reformed from what they had known. And the climate would have been different too. They get onto an ark and it's probably like a garden climate almost. They get off and you have cold temperatures, you got hot temperatures, you walk north and you get cold and you go down to Florida and you get a suntan and it's nice and warm. Everything was new and every single place they went and everything they did would have been a complete adventure. In the same way, 
Peter tells us in the New Testament that this will happen again, just as it did to Noah. So what I want to do today is I want to take a couple minutes and I re- want to read 2 Peter chapter 3 in its entirety and have you see the parallels to the flood, both before and after the flood. Here's what Peter says. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your minds by way of reminder that you be, may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. What was it that they were doing to Noah beforehand? They were certainly scoffing him. They were living in wickedness. They were living with every intent of their mind continually on sin. And it's exactly what's happening here. They're, according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Meaning the coming of Jesus Christ. And what was it that, that they were saying before the flood? 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 What flood? Of course they were, because if they weren't, they would have been on the ark with Noah and they would have been following the Lord. So they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We have creation and we got people that dismiss that a flood is coming and the flood came. And the same thing is happening with Jesus Christ. Oh, everything is just the same. It's all going about the same and it'll always be the same. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, meaning that God is holding the universe together by the power of his word. We read that in Colossians chapter 1. We read that in Hebrews uh, 1 verse 1 that he is sustaining and holding all things together by the power of his word. The heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That comes from back in the 90th Psalm, the oldest Psalm in the Bible, uh, Psalm 90 verse 4, I believe, which was written by Moses. He's quoting him here. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And remember what it said about Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. He's out there preaching by his words and he's preaching by his actions, trying to get people to repent and to believe him that the world will be destroyed. And then we have this same great and patient God who calls Abraham out of the Chaldeans and he sends him down. He says, I'm going to give you this land. But what does he do? He says, you can't personally have it. It's going to go to your descendants after you because the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness. In other words, God is giving these people 400 years to repent and to call on him and to turn to him. So people say how unjust God is that he judges people and he judges sin and he punishes people when in fact he gave these people 400 years. All people can do is read the book of Joshua and say, oh, it says go in and kill all the women, kill all the children, kill everything that lives. But they can't look at the mercy of God for those 400 years. And then we have the Israelites who go into the land of Canaan and they're living there and they have the oracles of God and they've got the temple and they've got the worship and they turn away from him and they start putting Asherim and and other things inside of the temple and they're worshiping the starry host and all of the gods that they shouldn't be worshiping that aren't gods at all anyway. They're burning their children in the fire and God sends prophets early. They rise up early and they preach the word of the Lord saying, please don't do this thing. The Lord 
has an end to his patience. And they continue to do these things. And judgment is coming. And what happens? Judgment does come. And we read the book of Lamentations, the sorrow and the woe of the people as they're being judged for not obeying the Lord. Off to Babylon they go. And in his great mercy, he brings them back from Babylon and puts them in the land again. And he says, just obey, just believe. And Jesus Christ comes and he walks among them. And they don't believe. And they nail him to a cross and they spit on him and mock him. And he takes his anger out on on him again. And he sends him out around the world. For 2,000 years they've been in the dispersion. And during that time, the sons of Japheth move in and they take the banner and they proclaim the word of God and they proclaim it and they proclaim it and they say that there is a God and he does love you and he sent his son for you and the world now is turning away from that turning away again and judgment is coming and that is what Peter is talking about in these verses is that God is long suffering and he would wish that none would perish but that all should come to repentance and in verse 10 he says but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night it's going to be that quickly in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise just as the Great deep broke open and the windows of heaven broke open and the world was destroyed. It's going to be just like that as well. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now that sounds to me a lot like nuclear war, that God is going to allow us to do it to ourselves. It will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I Go, I listen to these people on Christian TV and they preach these prosperity gospels and they preach everything is okay with the world. And then you see other churches that ordain homosexual ministers and they're doing these things and it is not holy and in godliness at all. And what does he say? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That's why he's waiting so long, is it so people will just turn to him and say, I was wrong and I repent. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things which are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. That goes back to what I was talking about a moment ago, how churches are just falling away, Christian TV is falling away, and people are twisting the very words of God in order to meet their own perverted agendas you therefore beloved since you know this beforehand beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and forever amen god remembered noah out there on the sea and all the animals that were with them on the ark noah's faith held steadfast during these trials you see through the waves, the winds, the hours, and the dark. After 150 days, God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided as these winds blew. The fountains of the deep were shut up in their birth, and the windows of the heavens were stopped also too. God restrained the rains from coming anymore, and the windows receded continually to their new place. The 
things would be different than they were before, and the world would have a brand new face. The ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continually decreased. It was the 17th of the seventh month that the 150th day their sailing ceased. On this day, the curse was reversed as the waters decreased. And on this same day, the Lord rose from his grave. The world rejoiced at the man they thought deceased. But our curse was reversed when Christ rose. Hallelujah, mighty to save. And the waters kept going down. This took a while. On the first day of the 10th month, the mountaintops were seen. That probably made our good old friend Noah smile, even though nothing was really yet the color of green. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark and he sent out a raven which flew to and fro. The sun could come in and dispel the deepest dark and the same sun would help new things to grow. Noah also sent out from the ark a dove to check and see when the waters had left the ground. But the dove returned to Noah's hand of love because there was not a dry place to be found. Seven more days, it was in the evening of the day, behold, the dove brought in a fresh-picked olive leaf. Noah knew that the waters had finally gone away. He must have gave a great sigh of relief. Seven more days and again went out the dove, but this time it didn't turn to his waiting hand of love. On the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the waters were dried up from the land's face. So Noah removed the covering of the ark and turned his ear, and all the waters were gone from that lonely place. On the 27th of the second month, everything was dry. So God spoke to Noah, it's time to leave the ark. Take your wife and the others out under the sky. No more do you have to live inside where it's dark. Bring out every living thing. Bring out the birds and let them sing. Bring out the cattle, every kind of life inside. Yes, even the creeping things. It's the end of their boat ride. Let every living thing abound in the earth. Let them multiply until they're everywhere. Let them conceive and bear and give birth. Together with them, the world you will share. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to speak about Noah today and the glorious picture that he made of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that happened in this account of this real man, this patient waiting man who was such a faithful servant. And I would pray for any person that is listening to this video right now that has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to understand that there is a day of judgment coming there is a day when we will have to meet our creator and that we can meet him on terms of peace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. He came and he took the punishment that each one of us deserves if we simply call on his name and say, I was wrong and I want to be saved from the wrath to come and I want to spend eternal life in the presence of the Lamb of God, our Savior, our Lord, our great author of life and our Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Great is his name, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. This is a song called uh, Jesus Saves. Hope is here. Shout the news to everyone. It's a new day. Peace has come. triumphs at the cross. Love has come to rescue us. Jesus saves. Hope is here. What a joyful noise will
Every single date you see in there, you know, points to some other thing that prefigures the work of Jesus Christ. And every word is there for our benefit and for our our edification and to tell us about the wonderful mysteries of God. And we can read this book for the rest of our lives and not even scratch the surface of it. He wants us to cherish his word and he wants us to meditate on it and to just know it deep in our souls. And what a gift it is. So as you're reading your Bible, don't forget to hold it in your hand and think this really is the creator writing directly to me. This is his words of what he wants to know and how he wants to reveal himself to each one of us. What a great God to do that for us. And what a treasure we have in the the pages of the Bible. So let me go ahead and give you the uh, benediction and we'll get out of here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yeberechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. Ya'er Adonai panav eliecha v'kunneka. Yisa Adonai panav eliecha. Ve'yasem lecha shalom. Amen.